This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. If you could live your life again, what would you do differently? Different career, perhaps, or a different partner? Ali Burge and Michelle Callas have co-written a book that gives humorous options. Fancy meeting you here is the title. Welcome, Michelle. Welcome, Ali. Thank you so much for having us. How do you two do this as two writers? We have a lot of fun writing together. Ali and I, we've been best friends for over two decades now. So I think a big part of it is that we are we know each other inside and out um, and we're very similar as well. Similar sense of humour, similar values, all of that. Um, but a big part of our co-writing adventure is a lot of talking through the plot, sort of chapter by chapter and really having a clear understanding of where the story and the characters are going. And that allows us to divvy up the chapters, write separately. So it's not uncommon. I might be writing a chapter that comes after one that Ali hasn't quite yet written. Mm. So that's why our plot map is our Bible when we're writing. And then we spend a lot of time. We have sort of an inbuilt editor in our writing process. And that allows us to go back and forth and read each other's work and sort of insert ourselves into into each chapter. So we're very lucky to have an on, on-site editor. Is there one of you that is better at the dialogue? I definitely prefer dialogue and I'm not very good at description. Very grateful for Michelle who can describe a room or a setting or a season beautifully. And what about the steamy, sexy bits? <laughs> <laughs> That's where I think one of the, not conflict, but points of having just Ali is a real romantic at heart and loves to go hard on, on the romance and on, on that sort of element. And I think I'm more pragmatic and I sort of tone it down a little bit. So like with the dialogue and the description, we um, sort of naturally complement each other and keep each other in check, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I think um, Michelle likes to end it on the kiss and I like to end it on the next morning. So I think that, um, <laughs> a chapter. So I think that we've come to a happy compromise, which is good. Well, what is at the heart of this book is romance with a comedic spin. Does this genre of book connect you as writers as well as friends? Definitely. Um, We're both diehard romantic comedy fans. It's before we were writers together. It's what we used to bond over. We used to watch Love Actually every Christmas together and, yeah, discuss romantic comedies nonstop at school when we were at school together. It's now something that bonded us more than ever when we get to write together so it's it's become such a big part of our life and something that I think is a big integral part of our friendship. Well the main character Evie Berry is also a romantic. Tell us a little bit about her. So Evie was a wonderful character to bring to life. The goal for us when creating her is that we really wanted her to be fully formed human. We wanted her to have grand hopes for her personal life, her professional life. We wanted her to be endearingly flawed as as a human as she sort of goes on this journey to discover her sense of self and and what is important to her. We also had a lot of fun creating this side story, which was her becoming a a screenwriter because we are actually in the process of writing our own screenplay for our, our first book, The Book Ninja. So it was quite cathartic going along this journey and seeing her failing with her writing, doubting herself with her writing, and then eventually getting to a more positive place with it. And we certainly enjoyed bringing to life her her romantic relationship as well. 
So Evie's about 30 years old. She's a wannabe screenwriter. She works at a London cinema bar and she has a podcast, Pastor La Vista, with her best mate, Ben. Does she also share your rating of the five best cinematic kisses? She does. I think that was a little bit of each of our favourite kisses uh, put into one person, into Evie Berry, yes. So um, Evie Berry can recite the best kiss from just about any film ever made. The best kisses in films are also big passions of Michelle's and I's. Um, I think that our favourite kiss, which is not Evie Berry's favourite kiss, but our favourite kiss of all time is uh, in the notebook, in the rain, between Ryan Gosling and Rachel McAdams. It's a classic. Well, for Evie, the men in her life are her best friend, Ben, who just exudes warmth and kindness and the ever-ready Freddie, a friend with benefits, but she's doubting the friend part. However, there is a fella that she's obsessed with. Who is Hugo Hurst? Hugo Hurst, well, he is one of the most successful authors, philanthropists, actors, producers, he's sort of part of everything and um, Evie has always very much admired him as not just a hunky guy but also just professionally. She's um, really admired his, his trajectory with his writing and his creative endeavours and she's somewhat besotted with him and distracted by sort of seeing him as this idealised version of, of what a love interest could be. So when she happens to travel back in time, she is desperate to meet Hugo before he's successful and rather he's an up-and-coming writer who lives just around the corner from her. Well, after the shock of her going back into her 20-year self, she realises she can make the most of this crazy, magical opportunity and live her best life. But she's so much more knowing. She helps more within her family and even tries to circumvent her parents getting divorced. She's more patient with her workmates, especially Stephen. What does Stephen know how to do? Yes. Uh, So Stephen knows how to hack computers. He's a very charming, quirky character. He was one of our favourite to write, actually. And, uh, yeah, he can help celebrities when they've had an accidental leak of a nude photo. He can hack into someone's past history and he can also hack any computer and recover any document. Well, now back to Hugo. How did Evie manage to meet him? Well, Evie has a keen knowledge of all things Hugo from her understanding of him in the present. She, as I said, is obsessed with him and has read all of his interviews, follow him on social media. So he, she's come to really know um, his habits and his behaviours and his likes and interests. So she knows for a fact that he began writing his what would soon become hit, hit book. And when she goes back in time, she... Uh, orchestrates somewhat of a run-in at the cafe where he frequents and uses her knowledge of his likes and interests to strike up conversation with him. Hugo is also captivated by Evie's confidence in him and it turns into the best romance ever. You two went into overdrive on these romantic interludes, I think. Did you have a favourite one to write? I think my favourite one to write was just her finding 
bunches and bunches of flowers covering her entire room. I guess that was always a fantasy of mine that I'd come home one day and my husband would surprise me with flowers all over my room. It hasn't happened yet. Um, But yeah, I think that was a really fun one to write and just to envision in our minds. Well, but Evie doesn't spend all her time with Hugo. Second time round, she's more dedicated to a uni course and she suggests to her friend Ben that they start a podcast. Ben says, what the hell's a podcast? And she explains, it's like a TV series, but for radio. Who'd be interested in that? (laughs) And, of course, we know how popular they are. Hugo's book is published to rave reviews, but Evie is helping him more. And that's not just with confidence. What's, What's she doing for him? So Evie, um, as well as discovering this great love when she travels back in time, she's sort of slowly nurturing her own confidence and her own desires professionally and, and personally. And it turns out she, while she's really doubted her own screenwriting skills, she's very talented when it comes to transferring a, a book to, to a script. And while Hugo sort of struggles with that, that area of his career, she um, is really indispensable in, in boosting his confidence and also really supporting him with the editing and, and the writing process as well. I, I enjoyed that bit because we, we learn through Evie how a screenplay is written, uh, sort of taking the idea into a two-page treatment and what type of screenplays are going to be, the scene transitions, how big the silences, proofreading, and of course, the pressure of working to deadlines. And I love that because Evie's gone back in time, she chats with another scriptwriter who was thinking of writing an animation about princesses in the snow. And of course, we know that's going to be frozen. Very funny. But it's not all smooth sailing. What can you say about Chloe? Chloe, another one of our favourite characters, Chloe Frost. Chloe is an ex of Hugo Hurst and Chloe tries to make her way back into Hugo's life and back into Evie's life. She's quite angry at him. And at first, uh, Evie doesn't want to hear about it, but eventually starts to empathise with her. I won't explain what she's angry at or um, the conflict, but yes, she is a she's a great she was a great character to write. An enjoyable factor in the book is Evie's knowledge of the future. She speaks out about the sexist actions of men. I think something that we really became aware of as we were writing this that. While Evie only travels 10 years in the past, which in the grand scheme of things with lots of other time-travelling stories, that's not very long at all. But we became really aware of just how much has changed. Uh, I think in particular in the last few years with the Me Too movement, things are being called out and and are not as acceptable as as perhaps they once were. And, And while we have a very long way to go, it was really empowering sharing that part of the of our current, this current movement in the story and through Evie. Yes, well, of course, Evie's interested in screenplays and uh, film direction. And, of course, Harvey Weinstein has to come up. So Evie drops a comment about him being not such a great guy. But, well, you two, do you think romantic comedies would be different if women did more of the storytelling? 
I definitely think so, yeah. And I think as part of our research for the book, we watched a whole lot of late 90s, early 2000s romantic comedies again. It was interesting to see that they're, they are quite problematic in a lot of ways, although they are classics. I think if they were made today, they would be made very differently. So second time around, Evie is reliving her 20s. Will she find the love she is looking for and the career she wants? Ali Berg and Michelle Callas join together to make the romantic comedy Fancy Meeting You Here twice as funny. And it was funny. But before you go, I want to ask you about Books on the Rail. So Books on the Rail is our community project where we put books out on public transport for people to discover and to read and then return for somebody else to find. And we launched this in Melbourne in about 2016 and have since gone Australian-wide. So we've got books travelling public transport all over Australia and all the major cities um, and a lot of the regional towns as well. And the way that we make that possible is we're not the only ones who are putting books out, Ali and I. We have a whole team of about a thousand book ninjas who um, are very generous with sharing their passion for reading and putting their own books out on public transport for people to enjoy. And this has been a really wonderful way for us to share our love of reading, to connect with other readers and to be sort of just fully immersed in, in the bookish world, which is exactly where we want to be. I hope people write comments on the title page or something about the book or where they read it and, and then pass it on because that always makes for interesting reading too. Well, yeah. Ali Berg and Michelle Callas, thank you once again for talking with us about your book, Fancy Meeting You Here. Thank you so much for having me. I had romantic comedy and David has a thriller. The fact that a murder is committed in isolated outback Australia doesn't mean that it will not have global ramifications. Such is the case in Chris Hammer's latest murder mystery, Treasure and Dirt. So, Chris, welcome back to 3CR. Thanks, David. So good to be back. Now, our lead investigator in this work is homicide detective Ivan Lucic, but before we get on to him, you actually utilise a character from your previous works, journalist Martin Skarsden. And Skarsden is a very powerful influence in this work, but he never appears. You're making a point here about the implications of journalism, I do believe. <laughs> I am in a roundabout sort of way. Yeah, so Martin Skarsden is mentioned in this book, but... You're right, he doesn't actually appear, as it were. He's, he's sort of off the stage. So he was the chief protagonist in the previous three books, Scrubland, Silver and Trust. And by the final one, Trust, his partner, Mandalay Blonde, or Mandy, was also a point-of-view character. The problem I had when I was thinking about continuing that series was in all of those books, those two protagonists are deeply involved with what's going on. They're personally involved. They've got skin in the game. They've got their own emotional journey underway. And I didn't know where to take that next. And so I thought I would write a standalone book. So Treasure and Dirt can be read as a standalone. So you don't need to know about Martin Scarston. You don't need to have known about those three other books. If you read them, there's a couple of minor continuing characters and maybe that just sort of, you know, there's a bit of a universe thing happening there. In fact, 
the two protagonists, there's two point of view characters in this book. One is uh, Detective Sergeant Ivan Lukic. He's a homicide detective. And then he's partnered with a, someone he's never met before, a very young, freshly minted detective called Narell or Nell Buchanan. Now, Ivan Lukic himself is a minor character in the first three books. Very minor. He's rather surly offsider to the principal policeman in those books, a bloke called Morris Montefiore. And indeed, at the beginning of this book, Montefiore is meant to be the guy who's leading the investigation into this murder up in the outback opal mining town of Finnegan's Gap. But for reasons that become apparent in the book, he is held back in Sydney and so Lukic gets carriage of the investigation. So having moved away from Martin Scarsdale and Mandy, I still wanted to have the protagonists, and there are two, there's two point of view sort of characters here, Ivan and Nell. I still wanted them to have skin in the game, that they're not just disinterested, objective investigators. And pretty soon what happens in the book is both of their careers come under threat for different reasons, but both because of events that have happened in their recent past as police officers. So that means their relationship is important, their decisions whether they should trust and support each other or maybe throw each other under the bus to, to, you know, protect themselves. And and the other thing that becomes very clear for them is they both really need to solve this case. What is interesting, though, about that relationship between Nell and Ivan is the fact that they're involved in a police department, but they're almost set against each other by their own police department well that's right i mean it's it's an interesting kind of dynamic probably not unique to the police force i think most workplaces can have their office politics and whatnot this is a bit more serious than that i mean there's some real sort of concerns of ethics it's another thing that my books but i think a lot of crime fiction touches on and that's the issues surrounding personal morality about what doing what's right or doing what's wrong rather than what the official rules, you know, or going by the book would stipulate. Well, both Nell and Ivan are vulnerable. They're not exactly flawed, but they're vulnerable. Their own weaknesses get them into trouble. Yeah, I mean, it's not that they're bad people, but there definitely are some some flaws there, some weaknesses more like weak spots, I guess, or blind spots. The other interesting thing here is the nature of the murder they they set out to investigate. Jonas McGee has been found dead at the bottom of a mine and he's been crucified. But the interesting thing here, and it raises an element of a psychological tension here as well, Jonas McGee was crucified after rigor mortis had set in. And this adds a particular nuance to this whole notion of murder and the motivation behind it. Yeah, so what I'm playing around with a bit there is you often get a murder mystery starting with the discovery of a body. And lo and behold, you know, the detective turns up, the forensic people are already there and they say, oh, they killed it, they died at this time and this is how they died. In this case... It's not clear how he died. They know he's been crucified, but because it's after rigor mortis is set in, that means several hours must have passed 
So they don't know whether he's murdered or not. And if he was, they don't know if the same people who murdered him were the ones who nailed him up. So they're, they're, they're sort of, they're struggling right from the start to even understand fully what they're investigating. We're not even sure if it's a murder. Even two thirds of the way through the book, we're still grappling with that whole issue. Did he die of natural causes? Was he murdered? Was he crucified by the same party or somebody else? All of these threads then add a, a whole other dimension to this murder mystery. Hopefully it lets the reader to deploy their own imagination and, and start wondering for themselves what has happened. The setting is an outback opal mining operation, Finnegan's Gap, and it's got its own problems, namely ratters pilfering on other people's claims. But in many ways, you illustrate this transformation in Australian mining from small one-person operations to vast global concerns. And we have two billionaire miners, bullshit Bob Inglis and Delaney Bullwinkle, using the mines as a form of revenge on each other. Yeah, so opal mining towns are really interesting in that almost by legislation, they're one-man bands, opal mines, or partnerships or family concerns, because you can only stake a claim for about 50 metres by 50 metres. That's the law in New South Wales, but I think it's probably the same in places like South Australia where there's other opal mining towns. And so the big corporations can't get into opal mining. And you've got these really hard scrabble, doing it tough, singular type of miners. But in this story, there's a bunch of other people, not just the opal miners. There's a religious cult called the sect. It is into opal mining, but the leader of the sect is getting around these laws by getting his adherents to go and front for mining claims, then getting them to work them and give him the opals, right? So he's very unpopular. But then next to that, there are these two big billionaire miners and they're not mining opals. They're into stuff like iron ore and coal and all the rest of it, right? But they've got this rivalry that's gone back decades and decades and they're at each other's throats. And this storyline with them starts winding its way into the investigation of Mel and Ivan. So there's a number of storylines here. There is the investigation into the death and crucifixion of Jonas McGee. There's a storyline involving Ivan and Nell and their own past, including Nell's past as a probationary constable in Finnegan's Gap. So they're being investigated. Then there's criminality to do with these big miners. And there's other deaths there. There's an unexplained death that happened six or seven years ago and also events that have happened many decades ago too. So it keeps Ivan and Nell guessing, hopefully the reader guessing too. But by the end, they all come together in a very clear kind of resolution and you can see how, how all the bits and pieces are connected to each other. But you're right, there is that absolute contrast between the small one-man band struggling opal miner and these huge sort of global conglomerates or, or um, you know, corporations as they are. Lastly, we have, as you've already alluded to, some very perverse domestic concerns. There's that fundamentalist group called the Rapture. You mentioned the seer. You're bringing out the individual lives of those in Finnegan's wake 
and their motivations for what they do, some of whom seem quite disturbed, shall we say. Yeah, there is history. The people have history. Ivan has history, Mel has history, but so are all the people in the town that they're investigating. Some have good motivations, some have bad intentions, but sometimes, you know, the people you might think are bad end up doing some good things, you know, including some of the ratters. Alternatively, some people with good intentions end up, you know, doing harm to others. There's the other issue there too of just how do people seek justice and how do they seek redress? Um, you know, is the law serving everyone in the same ways? What is the power of these big corporations, for example, compared to the power of the individual opal miners? So there are a few of those sort of big picture questions and big picture themes addressed in the book. It's there if, if readers want to see it, but many readers, I think, will just want to go more with the plot elements and also the characters. I mean, I know myself as a reader, I really like getting to know characters. So hopefully that, that, that element of the book works. Those that live in outback opal mining towns anyway have to be idiosyncratic by their very nature because, and because of the demands of living in such an environment. So Finnegan's Gap is a fictional town, but it's loosely based on Lightning Ridge. I travelled up to Lightning Ridge, did some research, got taken down a mine by, by a lovely opal miner. That's where I learned about ratters and whatever. But this is so this is set in the same part of the world, which is right up out back New South Wales, just under the Queensland border. And when I, I was up there in July and it was sort of mid high 20s in summer, it's, you know, it's bouncing into the 40s on a regular basis. I mean, yeah, you have to be very tough and motivated to live and work in a place like that. And it's easier to live underground in some of those environments. The book is Treasure and Dirt. If the reader wants to find out how Jonas McGee died, whether Ivan and Nell can solve the mystery, they need to obtain a copy. It is released by Alan and Unwin, and the author is Chris Hammer. So, Chris, thanks once again for talking with me. David, such a pleasure, and thank you once again for your enthusiasm. So, thrillers and romantic comedy, you get it all on Published or Not. So listen in next week. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.